0: COVID is continuing its race around the nation,
1: more than 1,000... The far north coast has been on high alert because of fears a positive COVID case may have visited a remote Indigenous community. The states west and far west continue to have the biggest increases in COVID cases.
2: That's right, Juanita, 99 cases have been recorded in Wilcannia tonight. And, of course, that's one-fifth of the town's population. Dubbo has also recorded 35 cases, including six in Burke. As the Delta variant of COVID-19 spreads across the eastern states of Australia, our medical system is coming under increasing strain. This is especially true in rural and remote areas like far west New South Wales. Hello, I'm Annabel Quince. In this revision, we look at the history of rural and remote medicine. The growth of bush hospitals and the Aboriginal Medical Service and some of the debates that have shaped rural medicine over the past 50 years. While the story of European medicine in Australia begins with colonialisation in 1788, the story of healthcare in this country goes back thousands of years.
3: The medical knowledge of our indigenous forebears was very sophisticated Some of my own research with the Yudinji people, indigenous group inland from Cairns, showed that all members of, for example, one hunter-gatherer group had a detailed medical knowledge of more than 600 medicinal plants. Today, the average GP has a suite of about 60 prescriptions that one would write. So the indigenous knowledge was much more detailed than present day general practice. It's certainly no less. Major General Professor John Pern. I'm former Surgeon General for Australia and I'm senior paediatrician at the Queensland Children's Hospital in Brisbane and medical historian for the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Queensland.
2: So when Europeans came to Australia, what were the sort of key things that were talked about as being medical problems in rural Australia?
3: The day to day problems, of course, were things like trauma, burns, squalls, axe injuries, horse riding injuries. But superimposed all those were the specific Australian problems of things like heat exhaustion, heat stroke, snake bite, and those sort of things as well.
2: And how did they deal with it? Did they go to the Indigenous population and say, Can you help us with some of these or did we come with our own sort of suite of various remedies we took out to the bush with us?
3: Well, for example, when John Flynn wrote The Bushman's Companion in 1910, two thirds of the Australian continent had no access whatsoever to professional medical or nursing care. So the whole ethos of care in the 19th century and the early 20th century, outside the major metropolitan areas of Australia was one of self-help. And a particular problem, of course, was childbirth. The infant mortality in Australia was about one in 12 to one in 14. So that meant that with an average family size of five at the turn of the late 19th, early 20th century, one family in every three had lost an infant in the first year of life. Of course, many had lost multiple infants as well. So childbirth and maternal mortality outside the major metropolitan areas was a very significant threat.
2: So how did people prepare for that? If you were going into a rural area, what did people do to prepare for having to be self-sufficient in terms of their own medical care?
3: The major reference was, of course, the Domestic Family Medical Guide, and there was quite a big business in selling books about what to expect for intending immigrants. The first of these started in about the 1910s, sorry, the 1810s to the 1830s, but one of the most popular ones was published by an agricultural chemist called Angus Mackay, In 1875, he published a work called The Australian Agriculturist and Colonist's Guide, and in it, it had quite extensive self-help management. And one of the great published moments in Australian publishing history was John Flynn, Reverend John Flynn, who established the Royal Flying Doctor Service when he was in central australia in the very remote outback in 1910 he published a book called the bushman's companion and it had many things it had about a third of it was an extensive prescription of first aid treatment there was another section on how to make a will another section on burying the dead so this little book of john flynn's was very moving and of course in 1928 he established the royal flying doctor service Almost all the doctors that went out to provincial areas were European-trained. There were three classes of colonial doctors that came and served Australia. They were the very rare specialist physicians. These had attended a university, but that required relatively well-off people to enrol. So the specialist physicians carrying a university degree were relatively rare in Queensland. I think there were the most two doctorates of medicine practising outside Brisbane. The second class were the surgeons. These were surgeons who trained usually as apprentices, but occasionally they undertaken surgical training courses at major teaching hospitals, particularly in Edinburgh and in London and in Manchester. They came out as members of the Royal College of Surgeons. But the third class of doctors were the general practitioners. They were called apothecaries at that time. Throughout the 19th century, the GPs would aspire to a diploma from the Worshipful Society of Apothecaries.
2: As the 19th century progressed, wealthy regional towns began establishing very basic hospitals.
4: Well, it's more in provincial towns, things we'd recognise as hospitals. Jim Gillespie, Associate Professor in Health Policy at the Menzies Centre for Health Policy at the University of Sydney, places like, say, Ballarat and Victoria, which drew on the gold fields around it. So it was quite a wealthy place. And local people put together money and set up voluntary hospitals where you paid a subscription and you could use it and it would offer services to the poor. It was smaller hospitals or smaller towns were pretty much on the same basis. or they might be set up by a local doctor who would use it to drum up business.
3: Many towns had set up small bush hospitals. They were often run by nurses, but they were the only hospital, in inverted commas, that was available. It depended on transient local populations, for example, at gold mining areas where there were massive gold rushes suddenly over a year or two years there would be tens of thousands of of miners living and hospitals were set up in those areas they were temporary for example one of the richest gold strikes in australia was the palmer river gold strike in 1874 in north queensland and the maytown hospital was set up there to handle those injured and sick miners. The hospital only survived for less than 20 years and in that area now there is nothing left, just a few ruins of what was once a a very thriving gold mining town. And the same thing, of course, happened in the gold strikes elsewhere in Australia as well.
2: By the end of the 19th century, governments began subsidising regional hospitals.
4: It started getting by the late 19th century, early 20th century, the colonial and state governments getting involved in subsidising hospitals, particularly for capital works. There's a gradual growth over the first half of the 20th century of the role of government. Hospitals until late 19th, early 20th centuries were quite dangerous places and largely for the poor. It's in the 20th century, particularly after the First World War, sort of modern hospital starts emerging and it becomes a much more expensive Place to run. X rays emerge in the 1920s and modern operating theatres. And the hospitals to fund this started taking in paying patients. And so there's a class division appears between private patients and public patients. And they also start requiring more money from government. And as governments start putting in money, they want accountability and control.
0: Around that time, small rural hospitals were the absolute hubs of their towns, and they still are today. They're key employers in those towns. Dr. Belinda O'Sullivan, Senior Research Fellow in Rural Health at the Monash University School of Rural Health and the Rural Clinical School at the University of Queensland, They were skilled across a wide range of healthcare, including delivering babies, managing minor surgery, and only really escalating or transferring patients to other centres when required. And part of the reason for that is the transport systems were very rudimentary. So there was much more need for self-reliance and community resilience in building up the resources and the staffing required in each community. Back in those times, though, there was less regulation and governance around the credentials that doctors, for example, needed to work in hospitals, the training and the credentials and the level of governance of a hospital board was perhaps less rigid as it is today.
5: By the 1950s, you had succession of general practitioners who were procedural doctors. My name is Max Kamian, Emeritus Professor of General Practice at the University of Western Australia and I have been involved in Aboriginal health and rural health. You had hospitals which were staffed by nurses who were trained in larger hospitals and were generally highly competent. You had very few specialists around, even in the cities then, but most of the general practitioners made some sort of a relationship with a specialist, maybe a surgeon, an orthopaedic surgeon, who they could ring up and from whom they could get advice. And these doctors would also go and spend some time in country areas where the general practitioner would often give the anaesthetic and the specialists would often do the operations. But even in the 1950s, many of the general practitioners were very, very competent to do surgery, especially emergency surgery.
1: I'll talk about my experience growing up in Northern Victoria, in the little country town of Tutura, because it's a good example. I'm Ruth Stewart. I'm the National Rural Health Commissioner for Australia. I'm a medical doctor and adjunct professor of rural medicine with James Cook University. Our local GPs were the visiting medical officers at Tatura Bush Nursing Hospital. They, between them, delivered babies, gave the anaesthetics and also did the local surgery. For example, I had my tonsils out and my appendix taken out by Dr. David Hodson and Dr. Desmond Lally. Who were the local GPs, and to be honest, they inspired me to become a doctor. I thought what they do was really cool.
2: This is Rear Vision. I'm Annabelle Quince, and in this program, we're tracing the story of rural medicine from colonial times through to the pandemic. This relaxed approach to medical regulation and the role of GPs changed in the second half of the 20th century, as state governments took greater control of the hospital systems. But there were other factors that have also shaped the way medicine is practiced in Australia, and led to the closure of many small regional hospitals.
3: Several drivers have determined the practice of medicine throughout Australia. One has been, of course, the the wonders of specialisation. And although we realise that perhaps the most skilled of all doctors are our general medical practitioners, it's known that survival rates, complication rates are most highly achieved in highly specialised units. And patients now rightfully demand, of course, management of their diseases, by specialists particularly in the areas of cancer and endocrine diseases like diabetes and so on and this has meant inevitably the closure of some smaller hospitals
1: well yes and you're right a huge number of rural hospitals have closed in the last 50 years at least 40% of rural birthing services closed across australia i did my phd actually looking at quality of rural obstetric care And I found 40 clinical audits of rural obstetric care, and none of them suggested that the care provided in rural communities was any less safe for women and babies than that care provided in larger centres. People decided that you gave it better care if you knew more about the particular field that you were working in. So, we saw the rise and rise of specialists and subspecialists. Instead of being an internal physician, you might become a renal physician with the understanding being that, that if I'm to provide the best care that my patients can have, I must specialize in renal medicine so that I can understand and keep a pace with all of the new discoveries. For example, if I'm a rural person with diabetes, I might have an endocrinologist who looks after me for control of my blood sugar. But if I've got some kidney damage as a result of my diabetes, I'll need a renal physician. But I'll also perhaps need a cardiologist because my heart's been affected by the diabetes and maybe even a neurologist because I have some peripheral nerve damage also from the diabetes. Now, that's a whole lot of specialists that, as a rural person, I'd have to travel to see, and travel is expensive. Travel takes quite a bit of coordination. And once you leave your community and once you start seeing a number of different clinicians, we know that there's interruption of care and loss of continuity. So what we've seen in rural and remote Australia is that the advantages for rural people haven't been quite what they were anticipated to be.
3: The other factor, of course, has been sophistication in retrieval and in transport. Whereas a doctor, for example, in the 19th century might travel 50 miles on horseback to see a patient. Now, of course, a patient simply hops in their car and within an hour is visiting their local health centre. So this means that smaller hospitals have closed with centralisation into larger provincial hospitals with specialised areas. So retrieval systems and their sophistication have been very important determinants of the reduction in small peripheral hospitals. In Australia, we're privileged to have, of course, a whole system of wonderful retrieval systems pioneered by the Royal Flying Doctor Service from 1928. But now all the state governments have retrieval systems. The aerial ambulances go out and we retrieve patients, not only, of course, from mainland Australia now, but from offshore islands as well.
1: The other thing is if you're working in a small rural hospital, it's more expensive to provide that service. And as a rural community member myself, I say, well, yes, it might be more expensive for the health service to provide the care to me and my compatriots in my local town. But if you withdraw the service from my local town and and we as a group have to travel to distant town X to have our care, the cost shifts to us. So we have to pay for our transport and accommodation in distant town X, and some people can't meet those costs and so therefore don't access the care. The argument has been that it is riskier for a small hospital to provide care because something might go wrong except if you don't have any service at all in that town and something goes wrong, you have no way of responding. Whereas if you have a small service, you can at least provide stabilisation of the patient and the transfer to the nearest large facility that can respond to that particular incident.
2: While debates around hospital closure, specialisation and care played out, Indigenous Australians were establishing their own unique medical service.
5: When I first went to Burke in 1970, they had a quite good hospital. The doctors who preceded me had been highly competent and the nurses were very, very good. But Aboriginal people were admitted to a separate ward. They didn't like going there. The service that was provided for them was at eight o'clock in the morning. And if they were very lucky, they might have been seen about eight o'clock. If they were unlucky and the doctor was doing procedures, they might not be seen till 11 o'clock and they might often have just gone away. I don't know that they felt particularly welcome there. Some of the nurses were excellent and the matron was not particularly welcoming to Aboriginal people. Aboriginal people often had big needs but the reserve was about two and a half miles from the hospital and the only transport they had was their feet and also there was a distrust of the hospitals and distrust of about half of the nurses who had some racist tendencies. So that was why there was a need for Aboriginal medical services.
2: And did the Aboriginal Medical Service actually develop a very different model from what had been traditionally seen in rural Australia?
5: Yes. The first thing was there was Aboriginal control. The board was composed of Aboriginal people. Then gradually over the years, there were more Aboriginal health workers And the administrators were often Aboriginal people. And and as the years went by, more and more of those people came to the fore or got training. I've been working in the Burke Aboriginal Medical Service until I retired, which was two years ago. It had a combination of some European nurses, very dedicated nurses, all the frontline people at the front were all Aboriginal people. There were Aboriginal health aides. The drivers who had to take sick people down to Dubbo, 400 kilometres away, were all Aboriginal people. And Aboriginal people felt very comfortable there.
2: And did it, in terms of actually the way it administered health, did they have a sort of a slightly different model in terms of actually how they had just administered health care to the Indigenous population?
5: Well, it was different in that uh, the people in the health service went outside of the health service to gather up people. <laughs> and, you know, they, they would run clinics outside. I used to run a clinic out of my motor car around the district when I was there in the 1970s. And nurses used to come and we used to have immunisation clinics and just doing simple things like about 30% of all the Aboriginal kids had running ears and I got some young girls and uh, trained them on Aboriginal health aides and that didn't work and then I realised that the young girls didn't have any status or power and that the matriarchs had all the status and so I trained up the matriarchs and I gave them each an, uh, an oroscope and a pocket full of ampicillin And so when they saw somebody who had a bad ear or a painful ear, they'd look in it, they could diagnose them quite happily, and then start them on antibiotics straight away. And we got the perforated eardrum rate down from 34% to 7% in 18 months. Just simple things like that. And then what happened after that was that the health department started to take an interest And they started to do the same thing, except this time they had to have regulations. So the Aboriginal health workers, the matriarchs, they had to fill in a logbook, but they couldn't do that because they couldn't read and write. And they had to have a motor car with a a license and a logbook, and they couldn't do that. So we finished up with these influential people losing their jobs and being replaced by people who were more literate and had a driver's license. And were less acceptable by the Aboriginal people, and the perforated ear drum problem went up again. The Aboriginal clinics have stopped all that now because they've got well-trained Aboriginal health aides who are acceptable, and nurses who are acceptable. And there's now over a hundred Aboriginal doctors around, many of them working in Aboriginal health services.
2: So how well are rural and Aboriginal medical services coping with the COVID-19 pandemic?
4: It is absolutely clear that we Aboriginal people are a priority group in political rhetoric only.
0: This is a nightmare. In Wilcannia, 7% of the town's 750 residents have COVID. Michael Kennedy is one of them. Every day we just make phone calls to all the other family and friends in town that that have, you know, been tested positive to COVID. So it helps us from a mental standpoint to get through each day.
4: One thing it brings out is inequality. It's very clearly everywhere it's hit suddenly seen all the fault lines brought out really clearly. The two big worries have been around non-English speaking communities and Aboriginal communities. With the non-English speaking, we've seen pockets of that. Shepperton in northern Victoria has been one big problem spot. And the problems there have been focused very much on the immigrants and the communication with them has been very poor states have taken a long time to beef up their work on that angle. Again, despite long warnings that translating a public health announcement that most people can't understand from English into a language and putting it on the SBS website isn't communicating.
2: What does that mean for those areas and also the more remote Indigenous areas as well?
5: it means that it's going to go through those communities like wildfire particularly aboriginal communities who often live still in overcrowded communities and have higher level of morbidity with various diseases like diabetes and heart diseases it's going to go through them in no time at all it's going to mean that their hospitals they've got a capacity in the hospital but whether they've got a capacity to organize emergency care, I don't think they do. And they don't have the equipment to do this with severe respiratory failure. But they're not going to be able to be sent all over the countryside because the hospitals in the city are overloaded. So it's going to mean, I think, that they're going to need to get help and to do what they can do within the country hospitals. I mean, some of the country hospitals are run down, but many of them are. Very good. But there's going to be a high death rate if it goes through all these Aboriginal communities.
2: What about the vaccination rollout in rural areas? The government established a very different system for COVID-19 vaccinations from the ones used for infant and flu vaccinations. Was that a surprise?
4: Yes, it was a lot of surprise. And if you look at the pandemic plans and early plans, around vaccination, it says there should be a clear division between federal and state and implies that they'll use the existing system. And that was broken with, there was a terrible mess emerged, particularly in, say, aged care, where it's still sort of falling between the two of them.
2: And has that been true, do you think, for areas to do with Indigenous health? Because that seems to be incredibly low rate in which the Indigenous population, which has been identified as quite high risk, is, and yet so few of them are vaccinated.
5: I completely agree with you. All of the Aboriginal kids are immunised because the Aboriginal health workers organise it. The nurses do it. It's completely acceptable. They've got very good records and they follow people up who haven't had it done. You've got a system that actually works and to set up another system was, I think, just a stupidity. The Aboriginal Medical Service, it's a community-based system. If you just let them be and just sort of said, go out to the community and make sure everybody is immunised against coronavirus, if you'd simply said that, it would have happened because that's what they do. They have dedicated nurses that keep the records and do that sort of thing.
2: Max Canyon, Emeritus Professor of General Practice at the University of Western Australia. My other guests, Professor John Pern, Senior Paediatrician at the Queensland Children's Hospital. James Gillespie, Associate Professor of Health Policy at the University of Sydney. Dr Belinda O'Sullivan, Senior Research Fellow in Rural Health at Monash University, and Ruth Stewart, the Australian National Rural Health Commissioner. The sound engineer is Anne-Marie de Betancourt, I'm Annabelle Quince and this is Rear Vision on Radio National.